in verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I hear from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Uh, This ends the reading of God's word for this evening. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are in the family of God, which is to say that of all the ways in which God can personally relate to us, uh, whether as a created person, if he relates to us as we are in our state of creation, or if he relates to you as a justified sinner, or if he, he relates to you, as we've seen last time, as a slave that has been set free of all these ways, and there's plenty more that he's chosen to relate to us, the relationship that he has extended to you and has made a reality of is the closest kind of relationship that we can possibly know as human beings in this very age. We are in the family of God. This is a reality that we all share with one another. As a matter of fact, this is basically why I start virtually all of my sermons with five words, brothers and sisters in Christ. And what I want to do is I want to reinforce to you the fact that you belong to God through Christ. I want you to know that I'm speaking to you who belong to God, who are his children, and therefore we are brothers and sisters of one another. That's one of the reasons why I say those words in just about every sermon. Uh, We find this reality here and there uh, strewn throughout the New Testament. Every uh, now and then in the Bible it's brought to our attention that you belong to God Uh, rightly and relationally as a father who loves his children. In recent years, I've been uh, kind of pondering, I've wondered why it is that certain evangelists will say to the unbeliever uh, that they can, uh, quote, have a personal relationship with God. I've always uh, wondered that, maybe perhaps the last couple of years. I found it a little bit uh, short-sighted in some sense because all of humanity has a personal relationship with God. Every single person in the world has a personal relationship with God. You either relate to God personally as he is your father, or you relate to God personally as he is your judge. 
Now, what they mean, of course, and not to take away from, from their ministry or something like that, what they mean, especially in carrying the weight of this text that's before us this evening, is that what's held out to the unbeliever is that they can be in a right relationship with God, in a right, or even better, a righted personal relationship with God. In other words, they're personally in the state of sin. The unbeliever is personally in the state of sin and, and, and misery. And what God has done in Christ is to, uh, to do things, to act through his active passive obedience, to take away their sin, and by faith alone in Christ alone, their sin is removed, and they're personally transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. That's what I think that they mean by that. And this is, by the way, why the gospel is written. The gospel of John is, is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this passage right here heightens that reality that says that if you believe in Christ, that means that you've been made to to, to hear the word of Christ and you've been given into the very family of God. This is the very crown jewel of the Christian life, uh, to be in the family of God. This is the crown jewel of the Christian's experience. Here Jesus speaks with people who assume upon their own relationship with God that's essentially based upon bloodline, as you see in the passage. And Jesus says that being in the family of God transcends bloodline. I mean, like if you're a musician, there's a number of musicians amongst us. Uh, you know that if you're a musician and you have children, that doesn't mean that your children just automatically have the skill to be a musician. Uh, sort of like what the, uh, the Jews are experiencing here, just because uh, progeny, just because their progeny can be traced to Father Abraham, who had many sons, that doesn't mean in the biblical sense that they are like their father. And that explains the sermon title uh, this evening, if you're interested in, in this. Uh, the last uh, sermon's uh, title was, Father Abraham had many sons. Uh, this sermon's title is, And You Are Not One of Them. <laughs> Those who have the Spirit of God are sons of God, and therefore they're the children of Abraham. And so we'll consider this as it's laid out in our passage with this as our theme that's written in your bulletin. Any claim of relationship with God the Father is disavowed if it's made through any other means other than through the Lord Jesus whom he has sent. And we'll be considering these three points. The alleged father, uh, number two, the ideal father, and the real father. So coming to the first point, on the alleged father, we carry on with the dialogue with, uh, of the Jews uh, who had some sort of uh, appreciation of Jesus. If you remember uh, from the last sermon, Jesus speaks of the slavery freedom theme here in order to initiate an expansion upon this very idea into a dialogue about their alleged father and their actual father. He says to them in verse 38, if you look above just a little bit, he says, that I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Again, that slavery uh, freedman theme that's going on there. And of course, in common uh, Mediterranean uh, parlance, in common Mediterranean kind of quick response fashion, they answered him, well, Abraham is our father. Now, this is something of a knee-jerk response given to Jesus to justify themselves. They wouldn't be invoking Abraham if they didn't think it would help their cause in this dialogue. They've got to get some sort of leg up on Jesus somehow. 
And notice that this follows from the phrase that they say in verse 33. Uh, above, it says, we are offspring of Abraham. I think in the English and the, in the original, uh, you see a, a, a stark difference, a contrast between being offspring of Abraham and uh, being uh, that they are sons of Abraham, that Abraham is their father. And the original language is very clear that they're claiming and in English, it's, much, it's very clear that they're claiming a much closer relationship with Abraham here than before, which thinks that they think that this works in their favor. Hey, maybe Jesus will be impressed by this. You know, we have Abraham as our father. You know, maybe we can level with Jesus at, at some, uh, in some sense. Maybe he'll be impressed with, uh, with this. That is, they thought that this can be something that they can put on their resume that proves to Jesus that they have a connection to God, that they really don't have. And their works, as a matter of fact, show that they don't have it. And so Jesus then responds in kind. If you were Abraham's children, notice that, 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 that contrast that's going there, the, matter, the, the, the contrary to fact sort of conditional state. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Now, what are the works that Abraham did. Well, I did a sermon series through the life of Abraham, lengthy sermon series. We know that he was remarkably obedient in at least some senses. If you remember that that sermon series, or just the life of Abraham, he he leaves the prosperity of Ur of the Chaldees to go take upon himself a nomadic life, having no idea where to go. He pays tithes to Melchizedek. He uses his... Uh, the shrewdness of his relationships to gain some territory in the in, in the land of Canaan, the promised land. You remember the well uh, and the cave of Machpelah where Sarah and eventually Abraham is uh, buried in. Uh, perhaps the most poignant and most obvious sense of his obedience, the works that Abraham did, is he almost sacrifices his son Isaac, Genesis 22. We could go on much, much more than this. As a matter of fact, we're going to be coming to another event in Abraham's life that Jesus mentions uh, in verse 56, uh, where Jesus says that Abraham saw my day and was glad. He rejoiced and was glad. He certainly was uh, an exemplary figure of a godly man. But the thing that underscored all of this, the thing that underscored all of the works that Abraham did... And it was the reason that Abraham was doing all these things is that he had a true and saving faith. It's not a faith that merely appreciates God the, the way that we appreciate a painting or something like that. It, it, it was a, Abraham has a, a faith, an actual living faith, a, a faith that's evident, a faith that's being attested to by works, by obedience. It's not a vapid faith. It's not a hollow faith, perhaps like these people have here in front of Jesus. It's a faith that's living. It's a faith that's active. It's rooted in, in to the promises of God. So when Jesus says this statement here, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. When Jesus is saying this statement here, he doesn't only mean you would be doing the works that Abraham did, but you would also be believing the things that Abraham believed. Verse 40, but now which is a, a significant contrast, you would be doing the works that Abraham did, but you ain't. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
Again, we understand that Jesus here, as we've seen before, uh, he is able to discern hearts, something that no other person could do. He's able to discern hearts, particularly hearts that either have faith or do not have faith, like Abraham. And what claim does he make upon their hearts? Well, that there's violence in them. He claims that their hearts contain violence toward him. Why is there violence in their hearts? Because unlike Abraham, they're against the truth. They work against the promises of God. They don't have a faith that's rooted in the promises of God. They have a faith that merely, again, he's speaking to the Jews who believed in him. A hollow faith, an appreciatory faith, a faith that says, yeah, I agree with some things, but not nearly a faith like Father Abraham has. They're working against the promises of God, and really, if they're against the truth, this means that they're against the origins of the truth as well. And in reverse, we can understand this in the reverse. He's saying that the heart that's changed by the gospel is one that exhibits the work that's done upon it. This is what describes Abraham, whom they think, again, they can lay some sort of claim to. So taking inventory of our passage thus far, again, they allege that their father is Abraham, and because of that, because that they allege that their father is Abraham, they think that they have a heritage to claim to. They think that, that they have a hegemony that bequeaths to them the privileges of the covenant without really needing to display any of the fruits of it. They think that their birthright automatically entrusts them with God's special care. Uh, their birthright uh, entrusts them with God's special providence, his special satisfaction, his special protection. This is arrogance. This is absolute arrogance. And more than this, this is presumption. And as we looked at in previous sermons, uh, this is a mark of another religion. This is another religion that's in service to another god. Uh, Many things like this exist nowadays, brothers and sisters. Many uh, examples perhaps are even flooding your heads right now of ways in which this is... This idea is alive and well in the 21st century. I, have a, I had a conversation with someone recently who uh, told me of a person that they know who could care less about a holy life, living the holy life. They could care less about going to church. They could care less about repenting. They could care less about sin. They could care less about reading God's word. They could care less about uh, prayer. They don't have any marks of true saving faith. But, but... Uh, I'll tell you, they know that they're saved because they've been baptized. They have no marks of saving faith, but because they've been baptized, they can throw that on their resume, and that's why, that's why I don't really need to evince a saving faith. There's many other things, I'm sure, that is flooding your mind right now. Uh, Many other examples that you can think of where people rely upon, they put their trust in something external to the finished work of Christ. Here we can see uh, through his dialogue uh, that we're not to rely on anything other than the finished work of Christ like Abraham did in seed form. And so this brings us to our second point this evening, uh, the ideal father. In verse 41, Jesus draws out the fatherhood theme uh, just a little bit more. 
And here, as it's said in the theme statement, he disavows them of any opportunity to claim Abraham as their father by saying, you are doing the works your father did. In the original language, it's, you are doing the works of your father. It's a little bit more pointed. We, the reader, can see where Jesus is heading in his dialogue, can't we? When Jesus says, you are doing the works of your father, he's saying that although they claim to be like Abraham because they're in his lineage, they look nothing like him. In other words, at the very least, we could say this at the very least, we know again where Jesus is heading. The apple has fallen very far from that tree. And I think they understood exactly what Jesus is saying about them. And so in response, they give two knee-jerk, semi-accusatory statements, both of which are given uh, to form some sort of a sense of moral superiority. You could take a look at them. The first here, we were not born of sexual immorality. Now, this statement, again, that's generated from a sense of uh, moral superiority may uh, kind of take us uh, aback. It seems like it comes out of nowhere, but what they're doing is hinting at the, 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 the idea of what they think is the questionable nature of the details of Jesus' birth. And you know what uh, Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and uh, Luke chapters uh, 1, 2, and 3, had, what that has to uh, do with, uh, with their uh, understanding here. They're looking back at Jesus and insinuating that he was born as a result of marital infidelity. This is another example of irony in in the Gospel of John. There's times where people say things, that they ask questions that makes the reader go, "Mm," furrow their eyebrows a little bit, scratch their beards a a little bit, uh, because what they said, there's a sense of irony uh, to this, what they ask, there's a sense of irony to this. They accuse him of having sinful origins. Uh, we, the reader, knows that in fact they're speaking to the one who is from all eternity, whose origins is from the heavens. We've seen that in John chapter 1, where the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, everything was created through him. That's where his true origins are. So when they look at this, this accusatory statement generated by moral superiority, the reader knows, "Mm, you're judging Jesus? You have no idea where he's actually from. That's their first statement of of, of accusatory uh, language. The second statement, right next to it. We have one father, even God. And in saying this, again, this is generated from their moral superior, their sense of moral superiority. They persist in this. They claim to have a spiritual sonship, again, through bloodline lineage. God, after all, is called the father of Israel in the Old Testament, isn't he? Exodus 4, let my son go that he may worship me in the, in the desert. Jeremiah 31, Ephraim is my son, uh, Deuteronomy 14, the, the, the idea of sonship, uh, Israel is the son of God, is throughout all the Old Testament. So they think, why should it be any different now? Uh, that, that, that is, <clears throat> that they claim God to be their father, because at the end of the day, they understand that he is the ideal father, and can't they claim some sort of lineage from him, from being, you know, from Father Abraham? God must be their father, Right? is what they'll think. But this is not Jesus' assessment. This is not Jesus' assessment. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, 
If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Here he corrects their misguided understanding of Jesus' origins, and he presents himself as being God and from God from all eternity, and he presents himself as being a son who's sent on a mission, a mission that when it's accomplished, uh, this mission will result in certain effects. One of the most prominent of these effects is that they will love the Son because they love the Father. Uh, They'll love Jesus. They'll love his message because they love the one who sent him to deliver it. And so it only stands to reason. Since they don't have a love for Jesus... They must not have a love for God as their father, although everyone knows that he is the ideal father. In other words, if you don't have any love for Christ, then you have no affiliation with God as father. Just as uh, Jesus says earlier in John chapter 5, uh, verse 23, that whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Again, you see this theme carrying itself out. One of the commentaries uh, puts their situation in perspective a little bit. I think this is from D.A. Carson. He says, spiritual sonship is the uh, spiritual sonship in the only sense that matters is attested by likeness and conduct. And here, Jesus, although he acknowledges with the Jews here that God is the ideal father and that they think that they belong to him because they're progeny of Abraham, Jesus says to them that because they don't have uh, love for him as the very thing that demarcates the ones who belong to God, they do not have him as father. Uh, Brothers and sisters, there's perhaps no one in the world more difficult to evangelize to than someone who thinks that they're a Christian but who really is not. I've run into a lot of them. I'm sure you have run into a lot of them in your day as well. Um, One characteristic trait that you'll see in many of them that basically demarcates uh, many of them is exactly what Jesus is saying here, a lack of love. Uh, uh, That is to say, a a lack of true love, not a a um, self-gratifying love, not a promiscuous, standardless love, but a lack of actual true love. Another characteristic that you'll note uh, as you come in contact with them is that not only do they have a lack of true love, they also have a lack of ability to bear up under the word of God. The one who belongs to God is the one who loves Christ, who desires to be like him who has the things of Christ worked in him, who prioritizes the word of God, who finds in God the hope of glory. Uh, this is the love that's been poured out on our, uh, shed abroad in our hearts through the spirit he's been given to us, Romans 5. This is what they don't have because their alleged father is not their real father, which leads us to our very uh, last point on their real father. And this is where the confrontation gets perhaps the most raw. 
They've said that their father is Abraham, verse 39. They've also said that they have one father, even God, verse 41. But Jesus says here, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your desire, your will is to do your father's desires. Here Jesus identifies their real father by name, and being consistent within the dialogue, he, he states that they actually bear resemblance to their father. And Jesus says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. This is probably in reference to the story in Genesis 3, where the devil is instrumental in the fall of Adam, causing the death of all mankind. It's a fitting resemblance to them, seeing as though he said just above in verse 40 that they were seeking to kill him. Jesus also says that the devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, this is most likely in reference, again, to Genesis 3, where he uh, distorts the truth to Eve. He speaks the lie in the Garden of Eden, deceiving her. The implication here, of course, is that the distortion of the truth is considered a lie in the Bible. And again, it's a fitting description of them seeing as though Jesus said in verse 41 that they sought to kill him even though he has told them the truth that is from God, even in the very next verse. He continues to show how, he, how this resembles their father. He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. This resembles their father. In other words, if Jesus would not have represented the truth, if Jesus would have represented the lie and protected what was false, then they would have no problem in receiving him. They'd receive him just fine. Uh, Another commentator on this uh, passage says this phrase, Jesus tells the truth, and it's for this very reason that they don't believe in him. They've drunk so deeply at the wells of falsehood that they're unable to even recognize the truth. Error has become truth, resulting in a dramatic reversal in which all genuine truth is necessarily judged to be erroneous. When darkness becomes light, all light is darkness. They resemble their father. Like the devil, they want to destroy the truth and they want to protect the lie. So according to Jesus... The apple doesn't fall very far from that tree at all. They resemble their father, the devil. And so what becomes of their sense of moral superiority that we looked at before? Well, it gets thrown right out the window. Their sense of moral superiority is thrown right out the window. And Jesus reveals that by, by, by asking them two rhetorical questions in verse 46, he's further disarming them of their idea of moral superiority, their high-mindedness, their first a rhetorical question is given in verse 46. Which of you convicts me of sin? The answer is obvious. No one can convict Jesus of sin, especially if they resemble their father, the devil. That does not put them in any situation, in any platform, to convict Jesus of all people, of sin of all things. And the next question, right next to it, again, rhetorical question, if I tell you the truth, Why do you not believe me? Which gets again to the purpose of the book, is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the answer to this rhetorical question is a little less obvious, but it could be answered in in, in three main reasons. Why why do they not believe in him? Number one, they're deceived. Uh, Number two, they oppose the truth. And number three, they are of the devil who is the father of lies. And so he dispenses with their state of high-mindedness, 
uh, their sense of uh, moral superiority, but that doesn't stop Jesus from explaining the underlying cause of their unbelief and self-deception. Look forward in verse 47. He draws the distinction between the two real fathers, let's call them for now, between God the as the father and the devil as the father of lies. Uh, he says this, uh, this phrase, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you're not of God. And you see the dualism that's present here. If you embrace the word of God, you do so because faith has worked in you to receive the things of God. And you belong to God personally as father. But if someone does not embrace the words of God, it's because faith is not worked in them, and they receive nothing redemptive. They know God personally only as judge. We need to maintain this dualism uh, here that the Gospel of John brings out for us, that this passage right here, verse 47, brings out to us when we represent Jesus to the world. Uh, I can even up to the ante a little bit and say, we need to keep this dualism present when we represent Jesus to the person in the mirror, don't we? You, brother, sister in Christ, you have God as your father because you have been made to embrace him and you love his word. Uh, you desire his word. Uh, you, you bear up well in the reading of it. You bear up well in the preaching of it. You're made comfortable with God in prayer. You long for him to keep imparting the things of Christ to you by the means of his spirit, and you love his people. You, brother, sister, have God as your father, not in the sense that Jesus, of course, has God as his father. He is the son of God by eternal generation. We are sons of God through adoption. Again, Galatians 4, because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that uh, about adoption, that it's an act of God's free grace, wherein we are received into the number, we have a right and privilege uh, to to all the privileges of the sons of God. In in other words, my sons, my children, uh, don't have to earn their way into my house. They are a part of my family. Uh, These people whom uh, Jesus is speaking to thought they they can earn their way into God's house. They can earn their way into God's family, maybe through bloodline, uh, maybe through a relationship, but that is not the way that grace works. That was the way that grace works. Grace would not be grace at all. So we've seen tonight that any claim of relationship with God the Father is disavowed if it's made through any other means other than the Lord Jesus, whom he has sent. And I'll leave us with a couple of applications tonight. Uh, Firstly, uh, brothers, sisters in Christ, you are to be confident in your heavenly Father. You're to be confident in your heavenly Father. Again, the adoption to sonship that is in Christ is the crown jewel of the Christian experience. It's the crown jewel of the Christian life. It's one of the most prized possessions that the believer has in this age. The fact that we have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, it commits us with heaven's greatest blessings. Adoption is the reality 
that we are children of God. Again, this is a blessing, but think of this in, in, the, in the series of the closeness of relationship. Not merely that we're forgiven, although we are. Not, not merely that we're declared righteous, although we are. Uh, not merely that we are set apart for special use in the kingdom of God, although we are. We're adopted as his very children, and we have free recourse with him. Now think about that for, for a minute, and, 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 and bring that into your heart. You are to be confident in, in your heavenly Father. That means when he sees you, he sees his child. When he sees you, he looks upon you and he loves you. He loves you with an infinite love with which no other human being can love you. When he sees you, he sees his work in you. When he sees you, he, he sees that, yes, you, you no longer want the devil's desires. You don't want to do the, the devil's desires. Why? Because he's implanted his own desires in you. You've been made to love the Lord Jesus. You've, been, you've apprehended Christ alone, through faith alone, by his grace alone. You are his child. You don't have to earn your way into his family. He's done this. By the way, he has done this. And so be confident in God, your heavenly Father, in Christ. Secondly, act like you belong personally to your heavenly Father. You do belong personally to your heavenly Father. Act like you belong personally to your heavenly Father. Uh, brothers and sisters, being a Christian is, does not come without its challenges, uh, specifically in the way in which we ought to live. Uh, just like our passage says that we're to be like Abraham, that just as he had many joyful years of fruitful obedience, so too, likewise, ours is the task to live a life of joyful obedience, perhaps uh, most related to our passage tonight and most poignant for our time uh, today is that it's most difficult to stand in the truth. And yet, this is what we do who belong to God. We stand in the truth. Uh, You get persecuted for standing in the truth. You get talked about. You get mocked. You get slandered. You get called names. In some instances nowadays, in 2023, standing in the truth might even get you fired. Now, there's an appropriate, appropriate way to wield the truth that is, you know, obviously, don't be a jerk about it, but the task that we have to stand in the truth is not an easy one nowadays. It requires us to call sin, sin. It requires us to stand against the world, to stand against the devil, to stand, stand against our own flesh, to stand in the truth. We're to stand for the truth. We're to act like we personally belong to God, our Heavenly Father, because he is, he's given to us the truth. And so far as we uphold the truth, we will uphold the things of God. So act like you personally belong to your heavenly Father, because you do. Let's pray.